Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. Thanks for joining. My name is Brad Johnson, and I'm the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel. In each episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast, it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. In this episode, I talk with Steve Sandusky. And for any of you who've been in the financial services industry for any amount of time, his name should be a familiar one. Steve's been a pioneer, and alongside Ron Carson, helped launch a multi-billion dollar RIA firm. He then co-founded Peak Advisor Alliance and also co-authored Tested in the Trenches and Avalanche, books both written to help financial advisors design their ideal practice. Most recently, Steve's launched his own consulting firm, Belay Advisor, and also hosts the popular podcast Between Now and Success with former guests that include guys like Tony Robbins, Rick Edelman, and David Bach. Also massive RIAs like Joe Duran, Marty Bicknell, and Elliot Weisbluth. Here's a quick overview of what we cover in this conversation. We begin with the story of how Steve and Ron originally connected and then later launched Peak Advisor Alliance from a conversation that began in Ron's basement. From there, we get into what creates an imaginary glass ceiling for financial advisors that actually holds them back from the growth they want to achieve. Later on, we dig deep on the massive changes in fintech and how Steve sees our industry evolving away from return on investment and more to return on something else that's much more impactful to your clients. Then we get into the most powerful lessons and takeaways from some of Steve's former podcast guests, people like Tony Robbins and Hightower Investments' Elliot Weisbluth. You won't want to miss these. We wrap with one of my favorite parts of the conversation. Steve and I discuss the power of random acts of kindness and the power they have to change not only your own perspective, but the perspective of those around you as well. Okay, one last thing before we get to the conversation. Steve made a free gift available to all of you Blueprint listeners. His tool, 52 Tips to Grow Your Business Now. Don't miss tip number 17. We actually cover this during our conversation, and this is something that's benefited both Steve and I tremendously. This tool is available at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 1919, or in most mobile podcast players by swiping to the show notes and clicking our link at the top. As always, you can find links to books mentioned, people discussed, a full transcript of the show, everything else in our show notes there as well. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Steve Sandusky. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast. I'm excited to have Steve Sandusky with us here on this week's episode. Welcome, Steve, to the show. Hey, thanks, Brad. Glad to be here. Well, I want to start. What's really fun on my show is a lot of times I get a tie back to you know either previous guys that have, have been on the show or... I like to think I'm not that old, but I've been doing this now close to a decade. So I guess I'm starting to get up there. And it's very cool to have you on the show because you were actually a speaker at one of Advisors Excel's very first events. And so I got to actually see you from stage. And so it's fun now to be able to talk face-to-face and have you share what you've been doing to help financial advisors all across the country for quite a while now. Yeah. I mean, this is a small business when you really think about it. And I've been around a few more years than you have. Got a few more gray hairs, I think, than you do as well. But uh, yeah, it's always good to catch up like this. Well, cool. So let's just dive right in. There's so much I want to ask you about. As we get started, though, for those that aren't familiar with you and really your history, I mean, you've really been 
I really look at you as a groundbreaker in the financial services industry. I mean, you and Ron Carson were writing books before it was cool to write books as a financial advisor. So before it was mainstream, right? (laughs) Well, now you're dating me. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I would just love to hear a little bit of your story, really how you got to that point and then maybe how you evolved. Maybe take us to the point where you wrote the first book with Ron and what got you to that point, if you don't mind sharing. Okay. Well, I think maybe the best way to answer that would be to just really go back in time, go back to the 1970s. So I was, when I was growing up, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. And my dad, although he was never in the financial services business, was always interested in stocks. And he had been an investor for, I mean, over 60 years. And so in the mid to late 1970s, growing up there in Omaha, we'd have dinner at basically the same time every night. And the radio would be on, it'd be KFAB radio, AM radio. And at the same time every night, like 5.20 PM, there'd be a one minute segment. They'd call it the market minute. And some financial advisor, you know, would sponsor that. And, and they'd come on, they'd say, you know, here's what the stocks are doing. Here's what the Dow Jones did. And so every night I'd be hearing what's going on in the stock market. And my dad and I would always just kind of be talking about the markets because that was something uh, between he and I. And then in about 1978, I was a sophomore in high school. I had saved $2,000 from various paper routes and different activities. And I went to my dad and I said, hey, dad, I'd love to do something with this. And he said, well, you should invest it. And then I said, well, what should I invest it in? And he said, Standard Oil of Indiana. And I had no clue whether that was a good or bad idea. And so I decided, sure. So I took $1,000. And just to show you what the technology was like back then, in order to buy the stock, I didn't want to go through a broker. And so the way to do that was through their dividend reinvestment program. So I wrote a check for $1,000, mailed it off to the registrar. And then about like once a month or once a quarter, the registrar would go in and they would buy all of the dividend reinvestment things. And then like a month or two months later, I got a letter in the mail saying, you are now the proud owner of like 12 and a half shares of Standard Oil of Indiana at 80 and 7 eighths. And of course, this was before we moved to, you know, we were still with the fractions there for stock prices. So anyway, so I got lucky. And so I bought the stock and it almost tripled like in the next three years. And so I basically wow. got beginner's luck. And so that was really kind of the genesis of my interest in the business. It kind of took me a while before I ultimately got into this industry. So went to college, worked for Caterpillar for a few years, went to grad school, got an MBA. I thought that was going to be my ticket to getting into the industry. Took a detour out to Silicon Valley for a little while with Hewlett Packard, and then eventually wound my way back to Omaha and ended up getting a job in this industry back in the early 1990s with Securities America. So that was really how I got the start. Spent most of the 90s with Securities America And then in the early 2000s, Ron Carson and I got together. We had been neighbors, went to the same church, kids went to the same school. So we really kind of got reconnected through our kids. And he and I got together one Saturday morning in his uh, basement at his house and just kind of caught up on what each of us were doing. And long story short, we decided to launch a coaching business. And that was back in, what, about May of 2001, And then that fall, we officially launched the program and uh, went great and did that for 11 years. And then in about 2005 is when we wrote the first book, Tested in the Trenches, and then came out with a second book called Avalanche in about 2008. Hmm. Very cool. 
So you were both advisors because Ron was at Securities America as well, correct, at the time? No. So Ron got his start in the industry basically cold calling out of college. Mm-hmm. And uh, when that was so successful, he decided to do it full time. And I think his first broker dealer actually was Securities America. But long story short, he ended up having to leave there and went to LPL. And so by the time he and I got connected, he was not at Securities America when I was there. And yeah, by the time he and I got connected, he was with LPL in 2001. And I've been a certified financial planner since what, 1996. But my role in the business has really been on the broker-dealer side and then working closely with Ron for about 11 years, building up the coaching side of the business. And I'm assuming the coaching service you're referencing is Peak. Yes. Okay. So really, Peak was hatched in Ron's basement, the two of you putting your heads together and, hey, we think we can help some people by sharing some frameworks that we've had success with. I mean, was it really that simple or was there more to it than that? Yeah. So Ron had started a company. I don't know what the original name was. It might've been Carson Productions. I think he started that, I want to say maybe in what, 1993, actually, I think it was. And so people, advisors had been coming to him because he was pretty successful even back in those early days. And they wanted to learn what he did that made him so successful. So he put together a once a year workshop where he would invite people to come to Omaha, spend a day with him, and he would share some of his best practices. And so he did that from basically 1993 until 2001. And he also did speaking engagements and some consulting work. And so when he and I got together, you know, we basically brainstormed and said, well, look, you know, obviously you're very successful as an advisor and I love kind of building the business. I love the coaching piece. I was doing a lot of that in my days at Securities America. And so we decided, well, let's make this a year round thing. Let's set up a coaching service where we charge a monthly fee. And in return for that, we'll provide you with ongoing coaching. And so that was really the genesis of it was to take a lot of the things that Ron had been doing to be successful. And then how can we repackage that into an actual system and codify it into best practices and deliver tools like ghostwritten weekly market commentaries and marketing PowerPoint presentations. And so it was the coaching piece and it was the tools piece, systems manuals, those sorts of things and put it in an organized fashion that made sense and then go out and deliver that. So that's what we launched there in the fall of 2001. Hmm. I think today, I mean, you look Google Mastermind and there'll, you'll go for pages on all the masterminds available, even in the financial advisory space, right? There's a number of different groups and coaching services available today. Was that groundbreaking at the time or did you take your inspiration from other places? Well, I think what was available back then was the strategic coach program. Dan Sullivan's program was certainly going back then, but I don't think it was anything near what their program is today. So yeah, I would definitely say that what we built at peak back then was, I would say, pretty much on the cutting edge. And of course, we had the internet was around then. It was still relatively new back then, but we definitely built a website. We did a lot of audio work. So what you and I are doing here today, we didn't have podcasts back then. We didn't have YouTube back then, but we did a lot of audio work. So we did monthly conference calls. We'd record those. We did twice a year meetings, which were called Excel meetings, like Advisor Excel. There you go. And we'd record those sessions. And gosh, I remember back in those early days, I was the audio editor. So I'd take those <laughs> sessions and I'd you know fire up the software and I'd actually do the audio editing as well. So of course, you know, as you know, starting a company, you're a jack of all trades, you wear all the different hats. And, you know, what's good about that is you really learn how to do the stuff. And so, you know, I'm pretty far removed from that today. 
But knowing how to do that stuff and how it works, it makes it easier for you to be able to train and teach other people how to do it and really know how all the pieces fit together. Yeah. So I'm curious now, because Ron shared in our conversation, it was this little nugget that I thought was gold. And it was this concept of this audio program he used to do back in the day called Habits of Top Achievers, I believe was Mm -hmm. the name of it. Yeah. Was that an idea that kind of came out of the peak group or was he doing that prior or were you involved in the audio editing in these? (laughs) The 15 habits of top achievers. Yes. I was the audio engineer. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Putting multiple tracks in there and putting the audio sound or the music soundtrack underneath and everything. Yeah. So I don't remember if he kind of came up with that idea prior to peak or whether that was something during peak, but that was definitely during the early days. And you know, he looked at all the people that were mentors to him and people that he looked up to and tried to identify what are some of the commonalities among these top achievers. And he came up with 15 of them. We recorded an audio of that. I think he turned it into a paid speaking topic as well. So for those advisors that are obviously listening out there or watching, one thing I took from that, it's funny because I started this podcast. And one of the things like, honestly, is no different than having you on here, Steve. I'd love to just pick your brain. You're a guy that's been incredibly successful in this industry. And for me, I enjoy these conversations, hopefully just as much as anybody else listening in. And something I took from that conversation with Ron, he landed his first billionaire client because of habits of top achievers, because he was asking them to come on the show to where he could just pick their brain and they could talk about themselves and you know share some habits that led to their success, which who doesn't love talking about themselves, right? Right. And... What you don't realize is that was a way for him to get side by side with some other top achievers that could be potential A-plus clients. So I think it was kind of hand in hand. It was value proposition, but was that part of the strategy as well? Or these are 15 people that I would love to connect with that could be A-plus clients. Yeah, I don't know how premeditated it was for him, but he is like I am, like I'm sure you are. I mean, we're just continuous learners and we just love to talk to other successful people, figure out what makes them successful. That was one of the reasons why I started my podcast more than two years ago was I really wanted to have an opportunity to talk to some of the most successful people out there, whether it's people in the financial services industry or authors or professors, you know, other people who really had something interesting to say that could be helpful to financial advisors. And so I love to learn. And so I thought, well, gosh, a podcast would be the best way to do that, have an opportunity to talk to people and really share some information. So, and I mean, I can look at the work that I do today and a lot of my business has come from my podcast, whether it's clients or guests that I've had on the show that have turned into clients or people that have listened to the podcast and have reached out to me and say, hey, can you do that for me too kind of thing. So it's been a great win all around having the podcast. Awesome. And we're going to get into the podcast because you've had some incredible guests. So I'm going to save that a little further down, but (laughs) I want to ask you, so from a coaching perspective, you've had this 30,000 foot view of the industry for quite a while now. And Ron Carson, one of the most successful, obviously you were sitting shotgun with him along for a lot of that ride, as well as a number of large RIAs that I know that you work with. If you could just distill it down and I'm going to ask this two ways, because I think There's the advisor that's in the world of trying to transition into running a business like a CEO. They're kind of more the sales guy that's transitioning to trying to be the CEO. And then you've got some ultra high-performing RIAs that are really kind of the rainmaker in their model or really the face of the brand. 
I guess if you could speak to both of those groups, because I know we have both of those types of groups listening in. What is the one thing, like if you just had to put your finger on it, that has gotten in the way or held those individuals back from success or kind of put the glass ceiling on them? What are some common themes you see from a coaching standpoint that have gotten in the way? Well, I'd say a couple things. One is you got to figure out what it is that you really want. And I'll give you an example. I've got an advisor that I coach. And as we were early on in the coaching relationship, his objective was he wanted to grow to a certain level. And that was really important to him. And as we continued through the coaching, it became clear that there were things getting in the way of hitting what that growth level was. Long story short, what we finally realized was the idea of trying to be at a certain production level was more intoxicating than the reality of wanting to do the work that was necessary to get there. It's not that this person was not a hard worker. It's just that's not really what they ultimately wanted to do. What they really wanted to do was be a great financial advisor. They got in the business because they loved working with people. They loved working with higher net worth people and solving their complicated issues as opposed to wanting to build a mega million dollar RIA and be the CEO and have to deal with all the people issues. So ultimately what we ended up doing was they're merging, selling to a larger entity. And so they can spend more of their time focused on working with the clients as opposed to running the business. So I think that's one thing is just getting clear on what do you want out of the business? Do you want to be the CEO or do you just want to be a great advisor? And maybe you still want to build a big business, but you don't want to be the CEO and if that's the case, then you need to hire some other professional management. So I'd say that's one thing is really getting clear on where do you want to be in your business. And then a second thing I'd say is just a lack of clarity in general, meaning what is the specific value that you provide as a financial advisor? There's been, you know, forever we talk about in this industry, how do you differentiate yourself? And I gave a talk not long ago and it was somewhat on the topic of a podcast guest that I had who wrote a book called Why Should I Choose You? So I got three financial advisors to go up on the stage. I had three bar stools there and I walked them through an exercise trying to help them describe what differentiates themselves from other advisors. And I had some specific questions that I walked them through. By the end of the presentation, it was fairly hard to distinguish the difference between these three firms. And so I think that is an issue that financial advisors continue to struggle with, yet I think it's so important. And I think it's becoming more important as time goes on. We get robo-advisors and those sorts of things to have what I would call extreme clarity on what it is that you do, what is the value that you uniquely can provide, who is your specific target audience. You know, it's not this spray and pray idea. It's like, Give me the client persona here. Give me the specific demographics, psychographics, you know, likes, dislikes of your target audience. Then you can create all of your marketing around that specific audience so that when you send a marketing message out there, the person on the receiving end is going to raise their hand and say, you're talking to me. That's exactly what I'm facing. I need to contact you. Or they look at that and say, that's not what I'm looking for. So you want to repeal some people but you also want to attract others. And so your marketing has got to be able to do both of those. Uh, that's awesome advice. 
Actually, I grabbed some notes here from one of the first books I ever read when I got in this industry, and it was Tested in the Trenches, you know, that you co-authored with Ron. Probably started around that basement conversation or maybe a few years later. <laughs> but step number one, gain personal and professional clarity through the blueprinting process, right? So exactly. where, where do you actually want to go? You know, where are we going? And then where are we at? Goes to building your brand is kind of what you spoke to with the process. Dan Sullivan strategic coach who we've mentioned already in this mm-hmm. conversation, they call it the unique naming guide. And as we know, most financial advisors, a lot of the planning they do overlaps. A lot of it's similar, you know, income planning, wealth accumulation, tax planning, estate planning, having some sort of plan that ties that all together for their clients. So have actually saying this is our proprietary process. It's the XYZ, you know, blueprint mm-hmm. specific to our firm, which I believe is a lot of what you're talking about there. How do I take the process that we do for our clients and differentiate it from everybody else, all the other offices lining the street here in our area. Right. Is there more to it than that? Do you have specific things that you guys have done to really start to expand? Or I guess, well, you're from Omaha, so I can use a Warren Buffett reference, right? So you can. start to build the moat around your castle. Are there other things that you guys have done there? Well, where I think the industry is heading is I think we're moving away from this idea of return on investment and moving toward return on life. And so my business partner, Mitch Anthony, has been talking about this concept of return on life for many, many years. And we really think there's a perfect storm occurring right now as people are moving toward this idea of life planning. Now, the idea of life planning is not a new concept. It's been around for a long time. But I think it has been so maybe esoteric is not the right word, but I think it's been too woo-woo, so to speak, that it hasn't really been accepted by the mainstream financial advisor community. But Mitch and I are working on some interesting things here that I think are going to change that. And so as I see the industry evolve, I think that's one of the ways that financial advisors are going to be able to really differentiate themselves is, yes, we still need to focus on the money, the return on investment, of course, is important. But so much of that today is being automated, whether it's with the robo-advisors, whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, the advances in those areas are just mind-boggling and it's only going to continue to accelerate. And so a lot of what financial advisors have done historically is going to be able to be done through technology. Now, that's not going to put financial advisors out of business. And of course, we still need humans to interpret the technology, to handle the emotional aspects related to money, And so that's where I think this whole return on life idea comes into play. And that, that to me is the ultimate end game. Because when we're talking about people's money, it's like money is just a thing. It's just a tool. Okay. And if financial advisors are simply focused on how do I help the client make more money or how do I help them get 10 or 20 or 50 more basis points return? I mean, that is not going to ultimately keep a client. What's going to keep a client is helping them figure out how can I get the best life possible with the money I have. And so we think that's where financial advisors can really add value that is not going to be overtaken by anything that a computer can do. It's the financial advisor having that conversation, helping you in that discovery process to help the client truly understand what's important to them, what do they want out of their life in all aspects of their life, and how can they use their money to get that best life possible? How can they make the best decisions possible with the money that they have, as opposed to how can I maximize you know, the pot of gold that I have here? That's awesome stuff right there. I completely 
get that. I mean, that's what people want anyway, right? I mean, the reason you go to work for 30 or 40 years and build up this nest egg is you actually want to use this stuff someday, this pile of money to create life experiences you've wanted to have, right? So do you have some examples of advisors that have started to go down this path? Maybe some things they've done in their process or some different things you may have helped coach them on that have started to go down this path of return on life? Yeah. So what Mitch and I have done up to this point is we've created a program that we call the retirement coaching program. And so to us, that's really a subset of this whole return on life concept. So I look at return on life as the umbrella. And under that, there's different components, one of which is retirement coaching. And so we've taken a a bunch of financial advisors through that process. And the idea is that the whole concept of retirement is changing and has been changing for quite some time. And retirement is probably not even the right word anymore, but we haven't really come up with a better word that people would really kind of accept and understand. But the idea is that when you combine this with people are living longer, and you know, again, speaking of the podcast, I had a guy on the show, he's a professor at London Business School, and he wrote a book called, or co-authored a book called The 100-Year Life. So I wanted to get him on the show to talk about life expectancy. And as people are living longer, how is that going to change the dynamics of living? How is that going to change the dynamics of human relationships? What happens when we have four generations of the same family living in close proximity to each other? And it's not like, like, so my dad, he's 87 years old and knock on wood, he's still going strong as well as my mom, both up there in Omaha. And I look at his career and he was in the service for a while and then he got out and he worked for Union Pacific for a little bit. And then he went to work for Western Electric and he spent about 30 years there and retired when he was in his late fifties. And when he retired, he never worked, quote, worked another day in his life. And he, you know, he followed the stock market. And so he, you know, had things to keep him interested. But I don't think that's how most people are going to retire in the future, particularly if we're living to 80, 90, 100 years of age. We're going to have multiple careers and we're going to have to go back to school at different points in time. And so I think that is a real area for financial advisors is to really school themselves in the area of helping clients retire better. I'll give you another example. I was having a conversation with a woman here recently in the Milwaukee area and she works for a large insurance company here, the quiet company, I think they call them. And her financial advisor is with this company and she's just getting ready to retire. And so she went to her advisor and said, Hey, what advice do you have for me now that I'm going to be retiring in terms of how to really make the most out of my time in retirement? And he looked at her and he said, well, that's really not my area of expertise. So my focus is on helping you make sure that you've got the money that you need in retirement and that you've got the uh, protection products that you need. And so, uh, you know, that's really not what I can help you with. And I look at her and I said, I can't believe that. I mean, in this, to me, you know, that's the kind of advisor that's going to be a dinosaur. I mean, that's a commodity advisor. You know, someone who could really add value is someone who could really have some meaningful conversations with her and her husband about what life is like in retirement. And that's really what Mitch and I had created was a training program to help financial advisors facilitate those kind of conversations between, you know, a couple that are nearing retirement or in retirement so that they can really maximize their time in retirement and, you know, not just focus on the money piece. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes in our industry, in any industry, but in financial services, we get this very 
narrow tunnel vision. And what that made me think of is travel agents of the past. You know, they used to make commissions selling airline tickets, right? Mm-hmm. And as technology overtook the need for me to call a travel agency to go book an airline ticket, if I'm still that travel agent selling airline tickets, I'm not in business anymore. Right. And I thought the ones that have survived is the one that I just used to book a trip to Sweden for my dad and brother last summer. What I said is, here are the dates. Please lay out this calendar of events. And for me, that's a great value proposition I'm still willing to pay for, right? So really, that's all you're saying is, Right. Don't don't be selling product if you're the financial advisor. It's more about the process to take them to and through retirement. Yeah. Now, here's the funny thing about that example that you just gave. So travel agents, because of technology, a lot of them have gone out of business. But you gave the example of a really complicated travel situation where a travel agent still adds tremendous value. Okay. So I think the analogy there works with a financial advisor, those that really can handle the complicated situation. So I think that's good. But here's the ironic thing. The technology has simply transferred the work of what a travel agent used to do to look online to the Saber system and figure out what your best connections are. We've just taken that and we've made that retail. So now you and I are sitting on the computer and we're looking that up. So we're doing the work that the travel agent used to do. And that's a thing that I think our industry needs to watch out for as well, meaning increasing your efficiency should not be at the expense of your clients. Meaning, don't take something that you used to do in your office, like data input, and say, I'm now going to make my clients do all of that because I've got this online data input thing. So here's a link. Now you go and you type in all your stuff or you link your accounts, okay? I see so many people doing that and that is not increasing your efficiency. That's just making the experience worse for your clients. So I think we have to be really careful when we think about technology and making sure that it's enhancing the client experience and not just simply transferring the work from my office off to the client. Now, that example that I just gave you, some clients might like the control or the ability to kind of, you know, enter and let you see what I want you to see. I get that. But I think we just have to be very careful and think about with this technology, whether it's really enhancing the client experience or whether it's just making our life easier. I love that. I love that. I never thought about it from that standpoint. You're spot on. And the other thing you're doing, well, if it gets that easy to do for the client, you're making yourself replaceable as well, right? So go to the betterments of the world. Oh, why am I paying this guy a percent over here anymore? I'll just, you know, 25 basis points sounds better over here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we just, we have to think about where's the real value? I mean, what is sustainable value that I can provide as a financial advisor? So you have to think about, What are things that I can do that are uniquely human? And I think about that in terms of technology, that if I want to be a financial advisor for the long term, I have to be thinking 10, 20, 30 years down the road in terms of what is uniquely human that I'm pretty confident that technology is not going to advance to the point where it puts me out of business. So we have to do things that are unique. We have to do things that are scarce. We have to do things that involve empathy, things that involve emotion and our ability to be in conversation, to be in communication, to be in relationship with other people. Those are things that I think are going to be difficult for computers to overtake, although I have to caveat that a little bit because you know I've read reports and heard conversations about how there are computers now that can do therapy with you. And they've done some studies to compare 
the results of, you know, human to human therapy and then human to computer therapy. And one of the things that they discovered was the human to computer therapy actually was pretty successful. And the reason was the human person was saying, I didn't feel like I was being judged by the computer. Hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, I keep thinking, okay, this is uniquely human. And then I hear a story or a study that says, no, computers can do that now too. Yeah, that's scary. So we're on the topic of technology. Let's just stay there for a second. The Wayne Gretzky quote that gets overused, but I'm going to use it because it's the best one I can think of. Where do advisors need to be skating to as far as that puck? If they're skating to where it's going as opposed to where it actually is right now from a technology perspective, in your opinion? Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I think advisors need to really be concerned about. And that is, my opinion is you're not going to gain a sustainable advantage in this business by being on the bleeding edge of technology. To me, technology is table stakes. I mean, I think about back in the mid-1980s when I wanted to get on Wall Street. And if you think about what was going on in the 1980s, the bull market had just started back in 1982. It was the era of Reagan. And, you know, the movie Wall Street, you know, it was big. And I thought, okay, I got to get an MBA. So to me, that was kind of the table stakes to get to Wall Street. So I went and I got an MBA. And ultimately, I didn't end up going into the financial business right out of school from there. But I think of technology today as the same way in that we need to have technology. But I don't think that most financial advisors are going to differentiate themselves by their level of technology. I think you need to keep up. And there may be some forward-thinking advisory firms, whether it's the Betterments, whose business is really built on technology. I mean, they're technology companies, I think, first and foremost, rather than investment companies. I mean, they're technology companies who just happen to do investing, whereas financial advisors are financial advisory firms who use technology. So I wouldn't get too caught up in feeling like I've got to you know, be on the bleeding edge of where technology is going and I got to get there first. And even if you are smart enough to identify what that next piece of technology is that's going to be the big thing, you know, first of all, you got to be very lucky to hit that. Second of all, even if you are lucky and hit it, it's just going to be a temporary advantage because then the rest of the industry is going to catch up with you. So you might get some kind of marginal time advantage, but I don't think it's really going to be a sustainable advantage. So I think if you keep up with the technology and not get too concerned about trying to predict the technology, I think you're still going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Going back to what you said previously, you talked about a client-centric approach. Going back to, is it easier for me to delegate all the data entry to my client? Yes, but it makes their life harder, right? Where I start to see technology and maybe where advisors are missing the boat a little bit, I mean, look how we're conducting this interview right now. It's a Zoom video conference, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I feel like in financial services, we just do things a certain way because that's how they've always been done. Not necessarily that it's the best way to do it. It's just, oh, that's how I was coached you know, back in 1982, right? When the bull market was booming. So Alan Moore, who I think you've actually had on your podcast as well, he just shared when he kind of really set up a virtual office, and I think it was kind of necessity for him where he had to literally move states... He took his clients to a virtual appointment process, something like what we're doing right now. And his clients actually liked it more because they didn't have to drive across town. You know, it's an inconvenience if I have to take an extra long lunch for a dentist appointment or a financial advisor appointment, where it's kind of cool if I can just pop up the screen and we can get the same thing accomplished here today. So 
would you say, which I know that that's not an edge that they can keep forever because as soon as one advisor does it, now everybody's going to start doing Zoom virtual appointments. But is that something where if we look at technology through that light, how can I make my process more convenient for my clients so it better serves them? Do you think that that's how advisors should be viewing technology or is it more the systemization of processes in their own office? Well, a couple thoughts there. So one is, as you think about technology, and I had a guy named Michael Schrage on my podcast who is a real deep technical thinker at MIT Technology Lab. Mm -hmm. And he said the way that he looks at technology, at least as it relates to financial advisors, he said, think of it in three different ways. One way is you can use technology to automate So obviously, as the name implies, you're taking an existing manual process, you're using technology to automate it. Mm -hmm. Second thing is you can use technology to augment. And so that's the idea of the bionic advisor. That's using technology to enhance the capabilities of a human. And then the third thing that you can do is you can use technology to personalize and segment your clients and basically taking all the data. So big data, obviously, is another term that is popular these days, but using technology to segment and personalize that data that you can then communicate back to your clients and find out some of the nuances about each of your clients and be able to target specific messages or get alerts that pop up based on certain things happening. And so you can do a better job of personalizing your service to them. So I think those are all very good uses of technology. The second thing is related to what Alan was describing there in terms of doing a video conference like you and I are doing. I think that gets back to two things. One is, what's your business model? And then the second thing is, who's your target market? So you can have a business model like robo-advisors, where we are a technology-based provider. We don't really have human advisors, although Betterment, for example, is kind of moving into that area. But their business model is a highly scalable technology platform, low-cost, automated investing. Okay, That's their business model, and it's based on technology. Someone like Alan and a lot of these young millennial financial advisors, they're trying to target people just like them who grew up on technology, who are comfortable with a video type relationship like this, who are used to talking to people and communicating with people over their phone through text messages. So that's what they're comfortable with. And for the most part, they don't have a lot of money either. And so it's not high stakes. And so having a conversation like this with someone that you've never met in person Yeah, that probably works for those folks. I think the big question, though, is going to become when these people have a million, two million, five million, ten million dollars, they win the lottery. Now they've got some serious money. Are they going to want to be having conversations like this, talking about big dollars and personal things, or, you know, a spouse dies? You know, do you want to be having a conversation with your client purely remote like this when their spouse just died and they're trying to figure out what they need to do? So, I mean, those, I think, are questions that still have to be answered. So, again, one is kind of your business model. And the second is who your target audience is and whether, you know, you want to work with them in the way that's going to best fit with them. So, I think those are the two key things you need to think about there. Right. All right. Let's segue into the podcast. We've brought it up a couple of times. Let's dig in. So, you've had, I took a list out. I mean, I love your podcast. I'm jealous of your guests. <laughs> uh, so you've had Tony Robbins on. You've had Carl Richards of Behavior Gap fame. You've had Eric Clark, founder and I think president of Orion. Massive RIAs. Marty Bicknell of Mariner Wealth also had Joe Duran on, I believe, as well. Mm-hmm. So 
a very diverse guest list of people in our industry, people outside of our industry. Before we get to some really cool things that I'm sure over the last handful of years that you've pulled from these amazing guests, why'd you start the podcast up? I'm curious. Well, so after uh, I ended up leaving Peak, you know, I had to figure out, okay, what am I going to do next? And when I left Peak, honestly, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I mean, I was so busy doing the work that I was doing there that I didn't really have a lot of time to stop and think of, okay, what's going to be my next act? I just knew that it was time for me to go do something different. I just really felt called that it was a chapter that had kind of run its course and I was ready for the next big challenge. And so... I took time off there after I left and really tried to figure out, well, what is it that I want to do? And I had been listening to a lot of podcasts. I had done a lot of audio work in the past, even back in my Securities America days. I remember back in the 90s, we had, it was essentially a podcast. I mean, I literally went to a guy's basement and he had a studio in the basement with this light hanging from the ceiling that looked like it was an interrogation room. And we would call people and I would interview them just like we're doing on this show right now. And this was back in the nineties. And it was, I think originally it was on cassette tape. And then I think we moved to a CD back then. And so I always enjoyed, you know, kind of the interview show, the conversation show, and just talking to different people all over the place. And so kind of my history of that, and then also listening to podcasts here back in the last few years, I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. It's a way for me to continue to learn and so I uh, called up one of my buddies, Jason Lahita from uh, FICOM. Oh, yes. and, and uh, a good friend. Good yeah, guy. Yeah. So Jason was my first guest. And I think the first show was probably kind of rough. In fact, if I remember correctly, the first time we tried to record, there was a lot of like the air conditioner in his office was making too much noise. And so we had to figure something else out and reschedule and record it again. But he was a great sport and a, and a good friend as well. So yeah, so Jason was the first guest. And it just snowballed from there. And it's been a lot of fun. And I've been very, very fortunate to have some great guests. Like you said, Tony Robbins, he was on a couple of times and Joe Duran, Elliot Weissbluth. Yeah. A lot, a lot of good names there. Why are more financial advisors not doing podcasts? It's a lot of work. And I mean, you know it as well. And so I think you have to have a passion for it. And like a lot of things in life, you know, there's this idea of this knowing doing gap. I think most financial advisors know what they should be doing to be more successful, but they just don't always do it. And I think part of the reason why they don't do it is because they're just not that excited about it. They don't have the internal intrinsic motivation to want to do it. So I'd say with a podcast, you really have to be curious. You really want to learn. You really want to have conversations like you and I are having here. And it's really got to be something that you enjoy and you're passionate about because it's going to come through in your voice And the listeners are going to know that. So I think that's one thing is just really having an interest in it first and foremost. A second thing is to really have a, I'll call it a position or an angle or a point of view in that, why are you doing the podcast? How is the world going to be better as a result of this podcast? Why should people be listening to this podcast? Who is the target audience for this podcast? And so there's got to be a reason why the world is going to benefit from you taking the time to do this show. So I think you really have to figure that out. And if you have those two things, if you have the passion and the interest for it, and you have a reason to do the show that's really going to provide some value to your target audience, then I think you've got an opportunity to be successful. Right on, spot on. Well, it's, I think it comes down to being a lifelong learner. I'm naturally curious and I can tell you're obviously a lifelong learner too. And honestly, I think I would do this podcast if no one listened. I have that much fun doing it. Yeah. 
know? And so I'm, and, and that's how they start out. <laughs> you know, it's like, no one's listening. <laughs> hey, the good news with your podcast with Lahita, no one was listening, right? That's right. That's right. Better to fail when no one is looking. So <laughs> Jason was my test case. Just kidding, Jason. <laughs> I'm actually going to give him a hard time now. I'm going to be like the podcast. It's made an amazing recovery after the first episode. That's right. Yeah. We, you know, it shows how you can fumble the ball and still win the game. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to some of your guests that you've had on the show. And I think something that I find on mine, I'm sure you do the same, is you'll have a guest on and then you'll kind of be thinking about the conversation a day or two later and something just hits you and you're like, wow, I never thought about it that way. Or this quote or this piece of advice was a game changer for me. I'll give you a little bit of time to process the question. But as you think back to your past guests, have there been those moments on the show where you're like, wow, that just blew my mind? And if there are some of those, I'm guessing there are. Could you share one or two and maybe who you attribute it to? Well, let me give you one here from Tony Robbins. And so I went to his Unleash the Power Within seminar, I don't know, maybe it was a year and a half or so ago. Just a great event. And like I said, he was on the show a couple of times. And he told a story about how back in his, when he was just a young kid, and he was just basically dirt poor. And I'm probably going to fumble the story a little bit, but the gist of it is he went to a restaurant and, you know, had about $10 to his name and he saw a young person, I don't know, maybe the kid was 10, 12 years old, who was there with what appeared to be like his grandmother. And this young boy was being so deferential to his grandmother, was opening the door, was being polite, this, that, and the other thing. And so what Tony decided to do was he gave basically his last $10 to this little boy because he was just so amazed at just how wonderful this little boy was to this older person. And basically the lesson that Tony was saying was he said, you know, if you don't give a dime out of your dollar, you're never going to give a million out of your 10 million. So he was making the point that we all have to be giving. And he said, you know, the key to living is giving. And so it's all about if you really want to have a happy life, you've got to figure out how can you give more. And it's not just necessarily giving more money, but it's giving of time. It's giving of your attention. It's giving your appreciation. And so that was a really powerful moment for me is just reinforcing the importance of being able to give regardless of how much time or money that you may have. So, so I thought that was a great lesson. Also, Elliot Weisbluth was on the show of Hightower. And he related a story that I'd actually heard a number of years earlier. And it was from Andy Grove, who is the former CEO of Intel, who has since passed away. But he wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive, which is a great one. If you haven't read it, definitely recommend it for folks. And so what Elliot said was one of the things that he does on a yearly basis is he says every December he sits down and he fires himself. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, since literally I take out my journal and I fire myself. And then I think about, okay, here are all the reasons why my board of directors fired me this year. You know, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I was too slow for this. I didn't notice that, whatever the case may be. And then he sits back and he says, okay, I'm going to rehire myself now. And now that I've rehired myself, what are all the things that I'm now going to do as the new CEO. And so what happens here is you make a mental shift. And the mental shift is that when I fire myself, I'm sloughing off 
all of the legacy stuff, all the bad decisions, all the mistakes that I made, all the sunk costs that are out there, those are gone because I fired myself. Now that I've rehired myself, I can come in with a totally clean slate, a brand new perspective, and I can essentially start things over. And so I think it's just a good mind exercise to cleanse yourself of all the baggage of the past and start fresh each year. And where I think the genesis of this idea, as I mentioned, came from Andy Grove. And what Andy Grove did was, maybe you've heard the story, back in the early 1980s, Andy was having a conversation with Gordon Moore, who was one of the co-founders of Intel. And back in those days, Intel's main business was memory chips. And they were starting to get creamed from the Japanese because the Japanese started to flood the market with these low-cost memory chips. And Intel, I think, had lost maybe $100 million dollars which back in those days was a lot of money. Right. And so Grove turns to Gordon Moore and he says, look, he said, what do you think we should do? And he says, well, if the board of directors, so this is Andy Grove saying to Gordon Moore, he said, if the board of directors fired us and hired a new CEO, what do you think the new CEO would do? And Gordon says, well, I think they'd get us out of the memory chip business and they'd get us into the microprocessor business. Because that was really the big decision. Do we stay with memory chips and bet the farm on that? Or do we pull the plug and go into the microprocessor business, kind of the beginning of the mm. personal computer revolution? And Moore says, you know, they'll get us out of memories, they'll move us into microprocessors. So Andy Gross says, okay, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we walk downstairs, walk outside the front door, turn around, walk back in the front door, and let's just pretend that the board fired us and now we got rehired and we are the new CEOs of the company and let's do exactly that. And so that's exactly what they did. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Intel went on to become one of the greatest companies in the world. And Andy Grove has gone down in history as one of the all-time great CEOs. Mm, I love that story. Man, a lot to take from that. He should have had that conversation with the guy running Kodak too, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you, lots of stories about Kodak as well. Yeah. In terms of how they missed the boat. And gosh, I mean, maybe you know the story too. Back in, uh, I want to say it's the 1970s or so, Kodak had like 90% market share in the photographic film business, you know, just on top of the world. And then, of course, by 2012, the company had declared bankruptcy. And then you've got a company like Instagram that had 13 employees. And they got bought by Facebook for about a billion dollars with 13 employees. You know, so Kodak. Oh, and of course, the ironic thing about who invented the digital camera? Kodak. Kodak. Yeah. Right. yeah. You know, and they invented it well, like in it, 1976. You know, what's funny is it's that exact conversation. Intel saw where it was going, but Kodak was too stubborn to get away from what their bread and butter was to go to where their market was going. Right. Yeah. They got too cushy and... They didn't really have a good understanding of what business they were really in. And so they didn't make the shift. They just kind of milked the cash cow for too long. And by then it was too late to make that shift. And so, of course, they're kind of the poster child for this idea of, you know, being disrupted. I mean, I may be wrong about this, but I'm thinking that it's probably going to be harder to disrupt companies today than it was 30 years ago. Because there is so much more communication today. There's so much more awareness of this business idea that I can't get disrupted or I've got to disrupt myself. And so you're seeing a lot of these, some of these larger companies, like here in our industry, you look at some of our companies, 
the big companies are still staying big and they're getting bigger. Like an investment, for example, I had Judd Bergman, the founder, co-founder of Investment on the podcast. And so, you know, if anybody's going to get disrupted, you might think it'd be Investnet because here's a company that got started back in about 2000 with some legacy technology systems. And now we've got all these upstart technology firms. So what does Investnet do? And this is a credit to their management. They're acquiring these firms and they're integrating them into their platform. So rather than actually, you know, necessarily building some of this new technology, they're just acquiring it. So I think that's what a lot of companies are going to be doing these days is rather than getting disrupted, I think most of them have smart enough management that they are actually either building it themselves or they're acquiring the firms and integrating it. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting too about your point on companies being tougher to disrupt I look at my iPhone here. It's like Android would have to put out a phone that is a hundred times better than an iPhone before I leave all of my stuff, all of my apps that I've invested in, all of the technology that is now basically my life's embedded on the iPhone, right? And so going back to financial services, as technology starts to creep in and as clients get very, very comfortable with having all of their apps or tools right there where they have full access to them, you're going to have to start to become a much better financial advisor to get them to shift platforms, I think, as time goes on. Yeah. And in technology, in in many ways, it's a winner-take-all type thing. Or it's number one and number two. If you're not number one or number two, I mean, that kind of goes back to Jack Welch, you know, years ago at GE, you know, we're going to be number one or number two in each of our particular market segments. So whether it's a Facebook in, you know, networking, social networking, you know, you can kind of go down the line there's basically, there's the Apple phone platform, there's the Android platform. So there's really two. Mm-hmm. And if you're not one of those, you know, you're basically not in business. So a and lot of that Amazon, is a winner. Too. Amazon's threw a lot of money at trying <clears throat> to third player and that fell flat on its face, you know? Yeah. I mean, and look at Amazon. Oh my gosh. I mean, they're in every freaking business there is. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just almost unstoppable, it seems. Yeah. Before we move on to kind of the last set of questions to throw at you, Any other guests that you want to throw any advice that hit home with you that you think would benefit financial advisors listening out there? You know, a lot of them. Another one, uh, Joe Duran, for example, uh, I've had an opportunity to work closely with him for a while and know him pretty well. Great guy. And one of the things he said that I think is instructive for all of us is that the more valuable you are to the business, the less valuable the business is. And so as we talked about this idea as you're building the business, you know, do you want to be a CEO of the business or do you just want to be an advisor? So if you do want to build a large business, then you have to make sure that the business relies less and less on you actually providing the service and surrounding yourself with the most important people. And I think that is another key thing that comes through in many of the podcasts that I do is just the importance of surrounding yourself with the right people. And when I have a coaching engagement, invariably, there is a people problem at the company. Either they've got someone on the team who shouldn't be there, or they're short-staffed, or somebody quits unexpectedly. There's always an issue related to the people. And I think that is such a key thing that the growth of your business will be limited by or will grow by your ability to surround yourself with incredible people. So I can't stress enough the importance of surrounding yourself with absolutely the best people you possibly can. And you have to continue to improve that. I mean, I think about back in the early days of peak and I, I think about all the people that we went through 
you know, to get to the point where we really had an amazing team. And, you know, as the company grew, we were able to get higher and higher quality people. And I would always tell the team, I said, when we're having an interview with someone afterwards, we regroup and have a conversation internally about, okay, well, what do we think of this candidate? And oftentimes I would say, okay, is this person a significant step up from the person that they're replacing? Because we always want to make sure that the next person that we hire is demonstrably better than the person that they're replacing so that we can continue to improve the quality of the organization. Mm. You're reminding me of a piece of advice, kind of a mindset shift one of our top clients had. This is a guy that I think last year captured north of 300 million of new assets. And this wasn't acquiring firms. These were new assets coming through the door. And he said one of his biggest mindset shifts when it came to building his firm was, and I see this as a common theme in financial services, it's this constantly, oh, I should have hired this person six months ago. So now you're all in this rush. You're rushing interviews. You're trying to find the candidate because everybody's overworked. You're understaffed. And he said, I forget who he got this advice from, but it was somebody that had built a massive organization. And he said, have you ever thought about shifting to the mindset that you're constantly hiring, right? You're a firm that, I mean, essentially every year you're trying to do this, this kind of hockey stick-like growth. Why do you ever stop hiring? Are you ever trying to not look for amazing talent? Why wouldn't you just keep that door open so people can constantly come in and you can continue to take those hires in the direction you want your firm to go? And he said just that piece of advice. He was like, (laughs) it was simplest advice in the world, but it did me so much good because I was constantly trying to play catch up in my hiring process. Yeah. Well, two thoughts come to mind on that. One is that you should always have a short list of people that you would want to hire. So even if you're not technically on the market to hire someone right now, you should always be networking. You should always be keeping your eyes and ears open for a great person where you'd say, you know, someday I'm going to have a need for someone like that. And I'm going to keep that person on my radar. I'm going to stay in touch with them. You know, if you already know them, but always have kind of a short list of people that you know you'd reach out to right away if that opportunity arises or if they come on the market. I mean, I used to work for a company before I got in this industry. It was a subsidiary of American Express. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but they had several different businesses and they would have these 35-year-old guys, and they were mostly guys back then, who were the CEOs of these business units And then something would happen and that CEO would no longer be the CEO. And then they would just kind of like put them on the bench and where they just would be off to the sideline. And I'm thinking to myself, what are these guys doing? You know, they're making a boatload of money and they're not really doing anything. Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but as I looked back on it, I realized what was happening is, you know, they were kind of in reserve. And so there were so many opportunities as the organizations were growing that while this guy may have left company A because of some whatever reason, you know, they were just kind of biding their time until the next opportunity arose because they know this is still a good guy that we want to keep around. Mm -hmm. And so they were always keeping that bench really strong. And I think that's something that financial advisors can think about. I know that's a real luxury and probably most firms don't have the luxury of keeping someone on a bench. I mean, that doesn't make sense, you know, for companies, you know, the size that you and I typically work with. But the idea of always having a short list of people that you can reach out to when that opportunity arises, I think is good. The second thing is, and this is something that comes from my good friend, Mark Moses, who I know you've had on your podcast as well. And one of the things that Mark said was a question that he likes to ask is, when was the last time you fired someone too soon? 
when was the last time you fired someone too soon? And the answer is never, you know? And so he said the longest time in an entrepreneur's life is the time between when they decide to let someone go and when they actually let them go. And I've experienced that as well, where, you know, I've had to fire people over time. It's, it's no fun. But what I ultimately realized was, if it's not working out for me, it's not working out for them either. And so the most humane thing to do is when you have decided that this person is no longer working out and, you know, you've given them all the opportunities, so on and so forth, but clearly, okay, this person is not going to be a long timer here. Once you've made that decision, you know, you got to let them go and you need to do it in a humane way. And while you may feel bad about it, ultimately nine times out of 10, they're going to end up in a better situation because again, it's not working for me. It's not working for them. Most people, we get comfortable. We like to stay in that comfort zone. And so we're not going to just voluntarily leave a situation unless it's really bad because the fear of the unknown oftentimes is greater than the unhappiness that we do know. And so sometimes you just have to give people that push, that shove to get out there, to force them to get out of their comfort zone, to force them to go find a new opportunity, and they're going to be better off. So I just think that's an important thing to keep in mind is don't keep people on your team that should not be there. It's going to be miserable for you. It's going to be miserable for them. It's going to be bad for the business. It's going to be bad for your clients. So once you make that decision, move fast, get it done. And that is so hard for financial advisors. I mean, it's hard for everyone, but I see it over and over again where they know that that individual is not working. And I think it's because typically a lot of offices, I mean, these aren't massive organizations. There are maybe 10, 15, 20 people firms. I mean, that's if they're starting to gather some real assets. So I just think it's really tough. I did a little mental trick I got from Darren Hardy that we did a private coaching session with him. He'll actually ask, he'll say, if you know Joe Smith came and sat down for an interview today and re-interviewed for their position, would you hire them? And that'll tell I mean, if there's even hesitation there, a lot of times you know what the correct answer is that probably somewhere else is a better fit for them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we've used that question before as well. You know, just asking yourself, knowing what I know now about this person, they've been with me for five years. Knowing what I know about them now, would I rehire them for this position? So that's a great question for sure. All right, Steve, let's transition. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions here? Well, hopefully I've had enough caffeine today. (laughs) We're from the Midwest, so we talk a little slower, so they might not be quite as rapid fire. All right. So the first one I'd like to throw at you, when you hear the word successful, Who's the first person you think of and why? Well, you know, I don't want this to sound like a cop-out. I mean, I think of my dad. And as I mentioned earlier, here's a guy who retired in his late 50s and never worked another day in his life in terms of paid work. Yet, I think he'd say that he's really enjoyed his retirement years. He's done what he wanted to do. And so to me, you know, I look at people that are successful. I think of people that are doing what they want to do. They're around the people that they want to be around. And, you know, they're kind of living life the way they want. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, they've got a boatload of money, but they're just happy with who they are. They're happy with what they're doing. They're enjoying people. And to me, that would be, you know, kind of the definition of success. With your dad, do you think that he went into retirement with the intentional thought process of here's exactly what I want to do in retirement? Or did he just let it come to him and he was comfortable with whatever happened? I mean, was there something that made it a successful retirement in your opinion from just watching from the outside? I'm not sure how intentional it was. I mean, I think in the last few years of his career, 
got moved around a little bit. He took an early retirement, a buyout thing. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think in his last few years of his work that he had the kind of passion for what he does that I have and that you have for the work that you do. I mean, we love what we do. And I mean, I can't envision a time when I'm going to stop doing this kind of stuff. And like you said, you'd still do a podcast, even if nobody listened to it, (laughs) just because you enjoy doing it and you love to learn. So I think over time, he found what he liked to do. And he was very fortunate. Both my mom and dad are very fortunate in that they have had lifelong friends in Omaha that they got together with on a regular basis. And unfortunately now two of my dad's very, very best friends, lifelong friends have passed away in the past year and a half or so. So that, you know, it's hard on them at this point in their lives, Mm -hmm. given their ages, but, but yeah, definitely for the first couple decades of their retirement, you know, I think they enjoyed themselves and my dad found ways. uh, I think the internet, so two things, one is the internet, you know, my dad loves the internet because he's on the internet reading all the business news and everything and CNBC. I mean, I don't know where he'd be without CNBC. And then my mom, I was just visiting uh, both of them a couple of weeks ago in Omaha. And my mom says, I don't know what I do without Netflix and her iPad. <laughs> so, you know, she, her eyesight's getting bad and yet she can still watch all of her shows on her iPad and Netflix. So, you know, technology has helped there. Love it. Hey, we're in a good spot. I think we can keep podcasting till we're at least 87 or 90. So I, I think, think so, as long as we can still speak. <laughs> as long as the mental capacity is still there. Right. We might have to turn the camera off at some point. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite book you've ever read and why? Gosh, you know, so many. One book that I think sticks out would be called The Soul of Money. And it was written by Lynn Twist. And gosh, this may go back maybe 20 years or so. And it really talked about the spiritual side of money. And as I talk about this idea of return on life versus return on investment, I'm really interested in kind of the deeper aspects of money. And I've been around and I've worked with a lot of really wealthy people. And it's just interesting to see what money does to people, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. And so I'm fascinated by that. And, and so I really try and understand a little deeper meaning of what money is, what it does. And this book, The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist, I think is a really good one. And I definitely encourage advisors to listen to that or to read it. There's a study, you probably know it. I just remember I read it somewhere. Uh, It talked about somehow they were monitoring the mental patterns or the brainwave patterns of people when they purchased something for themselves and when they gave money away to purchase something for someone else. And just going to back, how can you use this money and what's the purpose of life and everything behind it? That It was like explosions went off when you gave money away for someone else, as opposed to when you purchase something for yourself, it was this instant gratification of dopamine and then it went away. Yeah, And so it's just really interesting. I'm intrigued by that too. Yeah. In Omaha, there was a fast food restaurant there. And every so often when I'd go there, the person at the payment area there for the drive up would say, would you like to give like $2 for the Madonna school, which was this organization in Omaha that I think it helped like unwed low income mothers who needed a place to go. You know, what I would always do is I'd give them a $20 bill. And I said, you know, for the next eight people or whatever that come by that say, no, I don't want to give money to the Madonna school. I just want you to say, well, someone has given us some extra money and they're going to make a donation on your behalf. And it was funny because 
the person that I said this to at the checkout lane there at the fast food, they would just go nuts. I mean, they, they'd call, oh, come over here. You know, they get the other people from the cooks, like, come on over, you know, this gentleman, look what he did. You know, this is so cool. And then one time I did it, that same person was there and I did the same thing. And she looked at me, she goes, oh, you're that guy. You did this before, didn't you? <laughs> so it's just these little things that... Yeah it can have such a big impact and it doesn't have to be a big amount of money. I mean, it could be $2. It could be $5. It could be opening the door for somebody. It could be smiling at somebody. And those are things that are not expensive. And it is just so true that we can have a much better life if we just focus on, you know, how much more we can give and just help people that that's, you know, we're really helping ourselves ultimately when we do that. I've never shared this before, but I'm going to share it now because you made me think of something and I can't take credit for it. I've got a, a buddy named Stu McLaren that he's a super successful online Wish entrepreneur. Wishlist member. Yes. See, you're, you're on the cutting edge of all technology. <laughs> so Stu is, I met him through Michael Hyatt yep. and just an incredible person. Him and his wife started a charity over in Africa where they build schools for children that need them. But anyway, he shared this amazing idea with me. And it's basically... You're a secret shopper where you anonymously buy groceries for people. And I was looking for an idea. I've got a six-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old now. And I just wanted to instill this sense of giving into my children. And it's not the easiest thing to do, right? You have to come up with some fun kind of activities. And so I was like, Stu, that's a perfect idea. I'm going to do that with my kids. And he did it with his daughter. And I don't know where he got the idea. But I will tell you, I don't think I've had a higher high than sitting there. And so the secret is you give them an envelope of cash. And of course, the cashiers have to be in on it, right? And you say, whoever I stand behind in line, we're anonymously buying their groceries. And it's just amazing. And then my boys, you know, they're sitting there, they're like all excited. uh, (laughs) But just speaking to that, I get more joy out of that than anything in the world. And we try to do that around the holidays, completely anonymous. So I guess I'm blowing my cover here, but the key is completely anonymous to where you know you don't have to take any credit whatsoever. And going back to the staff getting incredibly excited, it's like the best day ever for the grocery store workers because they're having so much fun with it. They're like sitting there, they're in on it just as much as you are. And You'll have to try the grocery store idea, Steve. Well, and I haven't shared this before and I feel horrible about this, but right along with that example, I remember a time when I was at the checkout line and there was a person in front of me trying to buy something and they didn't have enough money to buy it. Mm. And I thought to myself, yeah, I should just do it. And I didn't. And you just reminded me of that. And I mean, I still feel guilty about it to this day that I you know, just didn't whip out a few dollars and say, oh, hey, yeah. here, take care of it. But yeah, it's little things like that that I think can just go such a long way and really brighten people say, and, you know, in this day and age, you know, in this country, this world that we live in that is so divisive, I think if we can get more people doing these little random acts of kindness, whatever you want to call it, I think those are things that we really you know, if we can do more of those, I think that'll go a long way toward helping us all get along a little bit better here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. It's something I try to do more and more of. And we're all in a spot where we're fortunate enough that you can pass on some of the success and gains onto others that it's going to make a massive impact for them. So thanks for sharing that. That's inspiring. Okay. Actually, I'm going to go to the last question. I know we're right at the stop time here. And I got this from your buddy, Ron Carson, by the okay. way. Okay. 
and I think this came from Habits of Top Achievers. So you might have actually written this question. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so knowing obviously that this is an audience of financial advisors, what is the one piece of advice that's led to your success that you could share with all the advisors listening to the show today? Yeah, I would say don't let your fear stop you short. You know, I look back at a guy like Ron. I mean, I have tremendous respect for what Ron has been able to accomplish. This is a guy that basically started as an entrepreneur from day one and has built some amazing businesses. And I've always respected and admired people like him and the Joe Durans and the Elliot Weissblues, these guys that have built amazing businesses. On the other hand, I've taken more of a corporate route. So my career has been Fortune 50 companies in my early days and then working with some more entrepreneurial organizations like Securities America back in its formative years. And then Ron and I building Peak Advisor Alliance from zero to a thousand coaching members. So I've had you know that opportunity to really build some of these businesses from the ground floor. And then I turned 50 years old and I'd been working with Ron for 11 or so years. And I finally decided, you know, it's time for me to do something that is totally out of my comfort zone, that's totally different than what I've done before in terms of starting something. And 50 years of age with a wife and three kids that are either in college or about to go to college is probably not the best time that you want to give up a great job and, you know, making a really good income and, and having a bright future and telling your wife, you know, honey, I think I'm going to quit my job and just kind of do something new on my own. You know, it's like, (laughs) are you sure that's what you want to do? But I would just say to everyone listening that, you know, I did that at age 50, you know, I kind of gave up something terrific to try something new because I always, I feel that it is so important for people to continue to challenge themselves, to continue pushing those edges, to try and find where those edges are and to not let fear cause you to turn inward and not allow you to really fully give the gifts that you have. And so, I mean, I'm still a work in progress. I mean, I'm 55 now, so it's been about five years since then. And you know, couldn't be happier. I mean, I'm thrilled that, you know, I made the decisions that I made and continued to push myself, whether it's starting a podcast, which is stepping out of my comfort zone or starting a new business or, you know, trying to make a sale, whatever it is. I just think it's important for us to, you know, if you want to have a satisfying life, it's just keep pushing those boundaries, trying to understand what you fear and move forward, do it anyway. And, you know, it's not going to kill you usually. (laughs) I mean, I like to climb mountains. And one of the reasons why I do that is I just like going out once a year and really doing something that is totally different from my day-to-day life. I'm I'm here in Wisconsin. It's pretty flat here. I get out in the mountains. I'm in a tent. Everything that I need to survive, I carry on my back. I mean, it just really makes you understand that Ultimately, we don't really need a whole lot to survive. We need some food, we need some clothing, we need some shelter, you know, kind of those basic necessities. So it helps you really stay grounded, but it really pushes you out into that barrier. So I think that's important for people. Just keep pushing yourself and don't let fear stop you short of what you're totally capable of doing. Awesome advice. Well, Steve, I want to say thank you. It's fun to, I mean, going way back when I was literally a rookie in this industry, remember seeing you from stage and sharing a lot of the tested in the trenches methodology. So it's really fun to fast forward and really see where your business has gone, where our business has gone. And I just want to say thank you for being a champion for our industry. You've been a trendsetter in many ways. 
And I want to say thank you for the work you've done for the advisors out there and, and in turn, their clients. You've made the world a better place for both of them. So thank you for coming on and sharing with us. Well, I appreciate that, Brad. And I thank you for what you're doing. Your podcast is awesome. And you're like me in many ways. You're out trying to make things better and share good messages out there and help other people improve. So I appreciate all that you do as well. All right, Steve. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. For access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from our show's guests, visit bradleyjohnson.com. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners. It really does help. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.